So Vida basically shared my first scripture, so there's nothing really left for me to do but to say, thanks for coming, enjoy the coffee. So it really feels like the Lord's mobilizing us. Um, if I just, just the songs that we sang this morning, there seems to be a unifying, there seems to be something wonderful that the Lord is doing in our midst. And, you know, I love that one song, I can't remember what the words are, but where we see the cross, he sees the empty tomb. And even as we sit here this morning, you know, the Lord, you might, you might see a broken heart, but you see somebody thriving in him, in relationship with him, in unity with him. You might see, or the doctors might see a cancer, but he sees somebody walking free and healed. And so I love the perspective of heaven on the things that we face on a daily basis. Even coming here this morning, uh, we had load shedding, and so um, there, was, there was quite a lot of I'd say mild panic in the house, um, just getting everything ready because we need to get coffee ready and there was no power at church and whatever. And on the way home, Shani wasn't able, able to blow dry her hair, so she had to stick her head out the window. <laughs> and so I'd like to suggest that one of the unintended consequences of load shedding is going to be short hair. Uh, <laughs> um, Robin Kirst sent their, send their, um, their uh, well wishes. They're sitting um, somewhere off the coast, uh, on the coast of Mozambique, enjoying a well-deserved rest. And if I can ask that, if you guys get a moment, please um, lift them up in your prayers. It's a great time for them to just be envisioned and strengthened and just to blow wind in their, in their sails. Um, sometimes we don't know what they fly into because they're leading this thing. They take a lot of opposition and sometimes we don't, we're t- totally aw- unaware of it, blissfully unaware of it. And so if we could carry them up in prayer, that would be wonderful. So getting back to Vida, um, this, the scripture that I actually wanted to start off with this morning was Isaiah 43. And, and Vida didn't know that I was going to be starting off with this. But Isaiah 43 basically says, the Lord says in Isaiah, he says, For behold, I'm going to do a new thing in your midst. I'm going to create rivers in the desert and highways in the wilderness. And there's, there's obviously quite a lot that goes with that, as Vida read. And I remember first preaching about this about two years ago. Um, it was right after the KZN riots. Uh, there was a lot of turmoil in the country. Um, and, but I'm convinced that, that, that the Lord is still doing this new thing. He's still preparing. If we look at society, it's changed inextricably from what it was two or three years ago. The church itself has changed inextricably um, since what it was two or three years ago. And I, I'd like to propose that even as individuals, we are not the same individuals that we were two or three years ago. And the wonderful thing about Isaiah 43, it contrasts how incredibly powerful God is, how he sits above circumstances. He can create a river in the wilderness. He can create a highway in the densest um, uh, wilderness. He is not limited by any constraints that we face And so he sits above that, and he invites us to journey with him um, on that. I need some water. And so this week, um, in in fact, end of last week, I'd like to start off just by sharing a testimony. So myself and Shani, we look after a friend's house. Um, He works for the UN. He's in Jerusalem, and he does... busy with negotiations with ISIS and all sorts of things. And, and so we look after his little house. We rent it out on Airbnb, and it's been doing pretty well for quite a while. And we've had some builders in, and the one night we get a call that the power is off in the house, and the, 
and the cleaning lady is locked inside, and it is pretty much like Fort Knox. There's no ways you can get in. And in any case, upon investigation the next day, we find out that, uh, so this guy is, is he's very good at a number of things, but admin is not necessarily one of them. And he forgot to pay his electricity account. And I promise you this is a good testimony, and we're not breaking the law, but... What the municipality had done, the city of Johannesburg, is they actually came and they removed uh, the actual um, boxes on the street. So now there is no ways that you can just quickly connect this thing up. You literally have to ask them to bring those boxes back and put them on. And the crazy thing was, in about 36 hours, we had a guest arriving from France. And so the next morning, in haste, I go onto the website and I have a look, and the procedure is as follows. We have to take cash, it's like 10,000 Rand, down to Bromfontein. I have to stand in a queue, I have to pay, get a receipt, then I've got to go to credit control, I've got to get them to clear and lift whatever block there is on the property. And then they send an instruction to the guys that actually put the box back, and the turnaround time there is 72 hours. So all in all, it'll take at least five days, but we have a weekend in between, so it could take even longer. And when I went into the house and I saw this disconnection notice, right next to it, I saw a little, a little um, card from Igoli Gas, because they are on, on gas as well. And I just felt the Holy Spirit drop something into my heart, and I took the card with me. The next morning, I'm going through, I've downloaded the list of every electrical contractor for City of Johannesburg, and I start phoning them one by one to try and see if I can get somebody to help. I also try to phone City of Johannesburg, and that was a futile exercise. And, um, and then I get onto the phone to my friend who actually owns the house, and I say, well, you know, I think we might have to cancel because we need to give this guy at least 18 hours notice. You know, he's flying from Paris, and but it's going to make a mess of our ratings and because these things thrive on ratings. But as I'm speaking to him, I just feel the Holy Spirit say again, no, 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 no. just before you do that, just hold on. And um, I, I take this Igoli gas thing, I feel like there's something on this little card and I phone the guy, um, Khatib, and I say to Khatib, um, do you know anybody in the city of Johannesburg that I can speak to to try and expedite this thing? He says, I don't have a clue but speak to my boss. So I end up speaking to his boss. He says, you know, I'm a goalie gas. It's a, it's a utility, but we've got nothing to do with city of Johannesburg, but give me an hour. Let me see. I'm stuck in traffic. And long story short, he, he finds somebody inside city of Johannesburg. I'm able to send him proof of payment and everything. And within an hour, he comes back. He says, I'm not in that department, but I've spoken to them and we are working to get the power reconnected today still. And Literally by four o'clock that afternoon, the power was connected. And so I phoned this guy and I said to him, Anthony, thank you so much for all your help. What can I, can I send you a bottle of wine or whatever you'd like? I'm happy to just send something just to show appreciation. And the guy said to me, I'm happy just that you got the service and I don't want anything else. And it was such a wonderful experience for me because I think the narrative in the press is that the municipality, they corrupt, there's nobody good in there, and it's going to be five days. The government's the same, and here's this guy. So I said to him, I said, Anthony, but then I pray the Lord's blessing upon you, and I pray that he favors you in the things that you do. And he just said, amen, and it turns out that he is a believer. And so what are the chances of me finding a believer in the city of Johannesburg that can turn things around for us so quickly and avoid? It might be a small thing for many people, but for us it was a crisis because... 
we needed to get this thing done and we're thinking about this poor traveler that's getting off a plane and there's no, there's no electricity for days. And it just felt to me that like the Lord is wanting to, uh, there's almost like an increase that the Lord wants to partner with his people that if we will listen, he will give us a thread that takes us through and we can get through any bureaucracy. And so just as I spoke to Anthony and he said to me, no, um, uh, you know, he's, he's a believer and he doesn't want anything. It made me think of a similar situation in, in um, 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings, um, we have the story. So Israel is in an absolute mess. They're governed by two, uh, probably of the most historically diabolical people that you could find, King Ahab and his wonderful wife Jezebel. And... These people are corrupt. These people mismanage state funds. They do a whole lot of stuff that probably we don't even do in our country. And um, I mean, one of the things that he did was he wanted a vineyard from a guy called Naboth. And he went to Naboth and he said to him, I'm, I'm happy to pay you for your, for your vineyard. And Naboth said, no, but I'm not selling. It's mine. I like it. It's, a, it's in the family. And he goes home that night all sullen and his wife sees that he's not, he's not, all, he's not amping. And, um, and Jezebel says to him, but you're the king. You just do what you want to. So they arranged for false testimony to come up against a Naboth. And this false testimony is of such an extent that they take him out of the city and they stone him. And now Ahab can have his vineyard. Now that is, that is absolute diabolical. But in the context of this really diabolical situation, we have the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19, he's just seen the Lord do an incredible miracle with the fire pouring down on Mount Carmel. He gives an instruction to execute 400 prophets of Baal. And he must be, he must be like he's walking on air because, I mean, fire just came down. They even added more water and that was also evaporated. And um, Ahab goes home that night. Jezebel obviously wasn't there. And he, and he speaks to Jezebel and he says to Jezebel, you know, this is what happened. And she is furious. And she says, no, this is not going to stay like this. And instead of sending a, sol a soldier or a brigade or an army to go and arrest Elijah, and the reason why she probably didn't do that was because Israel had just seen a, mir a miracle, a massive uh, miracle that the Lord had done in their midst. And they probably weren't all that keen to go against Elijah because they just saw what had happened. But what does she, what does she do? She speaks to a messenger and she writes a little note and the messenger goes to Elijah and in this note, Jezebel says to Elijah, if you're not dead by tomorrow, this time, the gods do the same to me. So now here we've got Elijah, just, he, he, he's riding the crest of a wave. He's just had power, come out, fire come out of heaven. And immediately he casts aside his confidence and he flees for his life. Amazing how just a little, a little word or a little sentence or a little narrative can change how we see circumstances. You know, suddenly now Jesus is dead and there's going to be no resurrection. We're not aware of any resurrection and it's game over for us as fishermen who have just spent three years of our lives following Jesus. And so, so Elijah goes, uh, he flees and he goes to um, probably the only broom tree in Israel. I don't know why it's the broom tree, but he goes to the broom tree and there he falls asleep and an angel sustains him. And then he goes further to a cave and at this cave the Lord appears to him. And now Elijah is really miserable. He, he actually asked the Lord to kill him. He says, Lord, take me home. I want to die. 
because I have been zealous for you. I have been pushing and pushing and pushing for you, but they've killed all the prophets, and it's only I that am left. And in that, the Lord just corrects him and says to him, no, I've kept for myself a thousand who have not bowed the knee, and I've kept for myself Hazel and Elisha, and he mentions a couple of others, and suddenly he starts getting the perspective of heaven again. And so just getting back to my little city of Johannesburg story, I think sometimes we can be swept along by the narrative in the media and we can cast away our confidence and we can get to a place of absolute hopelessness where we just want to die. And so building on that, um, I, I love the Old Testament. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says that the Old Testament is, an, is to act as an example for us. Because, um, and the reason why I like the Old Testament is because Jesus is somewhat hidden. The ways of the Lord are somewhat hidden. And so it's almost like a jewel that you have to try and find, like a bit of a treasure hunt. And this morning I'd like to just briefly go through the story of Israel. And the story starts off, um, my story starts off with Israel in Egypt right towards the end of their stay there. Um, and the end of their stay is really, really harsh. It's very, very difficult. They are harshly treated by the Egyptian taskmasters. And I think the thing that categorizes this season for Israel is toil. And toil is defined as putting in a huge amount of effort and getting little or no reward. In the words of Mick Jagger, I can get no satisfaction. And I think that categorizes Israel's life over there. They... And secretly, the Egyptians were afraid of them because they were increasing in number. The Lord was increasing their numbers. And so much so that, the, that the, um, the Egyptians gave an instruction to kill some of the male boys that were born. But still, the Lord favored them. And even when uh, the Egyptians would try and contrive circumstances and scenarios that would be... The main purpose of those circumstances would be to stop Israel from thriving, but yet they would still thrive. They would, the, Isra the Israelites would have to make bricks for the, for the buildings that they're building and the pyramids and whatever, and they would use mud and they would use hay. But even then, the, the Egyptians would take away the hay to just try and increase the burden on them. And we know the story that, Joseph, that uh, the Lord raises up Moses, and Moses goes and speaks to Pharaoh, confronts Pharaoh, and with the mighty strong hand of the Lord, Israel are led out of Egypt. A couple of weeks ago, we, we celebrated Passover. And the final plague that, that um, was brought upon the Egyptians was the death of the firstborn. And Israel was spared this because they were, they were told to put the blood of the lamb on the lintels. And, and that blood of the lamb is our Jesus that basically saved us from absolute darkness, from futility, from a place where we would never have any fulfillment or satisfaction or contentment into, onto a journey with him where he now starts working in our lives. And so Moses and uh, the Lord leads Israel out of Egypt and they, with a mighty sign, probably the most incredible miracle in the Bible apart from the resurrection, he, he, he splits the Red Sea and the Israelites walk through and the, the Egyptians follow and they get swallowed up. Now the Israelites have just seen 10 manifestations of God's power in the plagues. They've seen the Lord open up the Red Sea. And now, they, now they're wandering in the wilderness and they need water. And they come to this place called uh, Marah. And, um, 
and there is some water there, but the water is bitter. And the Israelites start murmuring against Moses and against God. And it's almost like the, the, new, the, new, uh, the old husband that talks about in Romans, where the old husband, you know, before we knew Jesus, there would be this old husband that would tell you you're never good enough. You don't do enough. You're broken. You're useless. And we walk around with all of this guilt. But the new husband doesn't speak like that. The new husband speaks good things over you. And so the Israelites are now murmuring against God and they're saying, but why didn't we die in Egypt? There are enough tombs there. At least there we've got leek and onions, you know. I mean, glorifying leek and onions, can you believe it? And so the Lord in all his grace, uh, grace says to Moses, but take a log and throw it into this bitter water and immediately, miraculously, the water turns sweet. And this would be a theme that the Lord would be working with, with Israel in the wilderness, where he would take those bitter things and he would make them sweet. And I'd suggest it's very much like the journey that we are on with him, the journey of transformation, where we lay down those things that hold us back, those things that the, the unforgiveness or the hurt or the whatever it is. And so there's this theme where the Lord takes Israel through, um, through the wilderness, and you know, Scholars have said that this journey could, be, could have been conducted in as little as 30 days. But the Lord keeps them there for 40 years. And during this time, um, the, the, the Israelites are, it's almost like the theme of the Lord is just to sustain them. He doesn't give them inheritance. But he just keeps them, he sustains them on a daily basis. Like the manna that he gives them, the manna is... Only for the day that you go and collect. That manna is only for today and you mustn't keep anything for the next day unless it's the Sabbath and then you collect twice as much. Because if you keep manna for the next day and it's a weekday, you, uh, that will turn, uh, it'll, be, it'll start becoming like worm infested. And the Lord is not pleased with that because he literally just wanted them to become inextricably dependent on him. To just learn to depend on him. Because you know in Egypt... There's a measure of control that you can exercise. I can. If I fulfill my quota of bricks, then I've done it. There is a measure of self-control. But the Lord is saying to Egypt, it's not about you. It's about me. And if you listen to me, I will take you on a journey, and there'll be healing, and there'll be another. There'll, there'll be all manner of, you will thrive, you know, not like in Egypt. And then later on, 12 of the, 12 of the spies go into the promised land, and I think here we start seeing the immense contrast between the slave mentality of Egypt and the mentality that God is after, this, the mentality or the thinking of a son and a daughter. And so the 12, the 12 disciples come back. Sorry, not disciples. The 12 spies come back. And 10 of them are saying no. No, we can't do this. This land is filled with giants. You don't understand. These things are huge. And they're going to kill us. Just thinking again like a slave, you know. We, I, I can't be anything more. But also showing the size of their God. That their God is not big enough to overcome these giants in this land. But then there were two, Caleb and Joshua, and they had a good report. And they said, no, the Lord, if the Lord is with us, we will overcome this. It's a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. And then towards the end of their 40-year journey, um, uh, I'd actually like us to turn to Joshua chapter 3. Um, I've actually got it open, so you don't actually even need to turn there. But Moses has passed on the generation um, of Israelites that had the slave mentality, had now um, 
had now passed on. And so there's a new excitement in Israel. 400 years before, almost 400 years before, God had promised to Abraham that he will take them to their own land. And 40 years prior to this, when they saw the Lord lead Israel out of Egypt by his mighty right hand, those promises were reawakened. But there had been 40 years in the, in the, in the wilderness where they seemingly have just been walking around and around and around. And so I'm sure that some of those Israelites would have asked, but, you know, we had these expectations, and now who's to say it's going to happen now, you know? The Lord didn't tell them they're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. He just, when the cloud lifted, they had to go. And he provided for them. But now we find Joshua, the new leader of Israel, and he's preparing, or the Lord is preparing them to go in and for the first time, inhabit and take inheritance and have lands of their very own. And it says in Joshua chapter 3, it says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they, before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests and the Levites bearing it. Then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you, may know, uh, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. So in the beginning of this chapter, some instruction is given to the people of Israel of... These, this is the next step. It's not the next 15 steps. It's the, ne it's the next step. And it's almost like the Lord sometimes works with us like this. He, there's a closed fist. But then he says, okay, so take that card, that Igoli gas card. Okay, now you've done that. Now I want you to call this guy. And slowly but surely, as we just hear what the Holy Spirit is saying, his hand opens up and he reveals the treasure that he has for us. And so he does the same thing with the Israelites here. He says that you need to follow about 2,000 cubits behind the ark. And you need to prepare yourself. But then in verse 5, Joshua says this. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And so what does this word sanctify mean? Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament context, in essence, what, what it means, it means to um, perform some sort of ritual sacrifice in Exodus chapter 19 when the Lord appeared to Egypt, uh, to Israel on Mount Sinai. He gave instructions to Moses to tell the children of Israel to wash their clothes, say for instance. So there was an external cleansing. There was um, sometimes to make atonement for sin, they would uh, offer sacrifices. And so there would be a whole lot of ritualistic things, but it was always on the outside. It was never on the inside. And the second component of sanctification in the Old Testament was to, to be obedient to what he has said, to bring yourself in alignment with what the Lord had said. But I would suggest because of the gravity of this particular moment, the sanctification probably had a couple of additional things involved. One of them would be Perhaps for them, because for them to align themselves with what the Lord is going to do, they almost need to align their picture of who he is. Because if they see him as a God that is just stingy, he just gives me what I need and nothing more, that's not going to bring me into a place of thriving, a place of 
lavish, a place of um, contentment and fulfillment. And so I would suggest that there had to be an alignment of their picture of who God the Father was because he is now about to bring them into inheritance. The second component of that, I suppose, of identity would be, of alignment would be identity. For them to start seeing themselves not as the slaves in Egypt, the people that are oppressed, the people that are just good enough to build, uh, to make bricks and to build buildings, but not to actually inhabit and take possession of something, there had to be an alignment there as well because they needed to start seeing themselves as children of the Most High God and see how God will do things for them. And so in the New Testament, now, what is, what is sanctification in the New Testament? In the New Testament, it talks about sanctification in Hebrews 10.10, and it says that we are sanctified once and for all. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. We are sanctified once and for all. That's what it says there. But there, are, there, there is still the aspect of aligning ourselves with what he is doing. Because I can, I can receive the sanctification of Jesus, the, 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 the benefit of the cross, becoming a new creation, shaking off all of that slave mentality, all the hurt and the pain that my life has, uh, uh, that I might have accumulated over my life. But still, the invitation is for me to align myself with who He is and who He says I am. The aspect of. Um, and, and I was actually challenged on this a couple of, about two months ago. I actually listened to the Andre de Reiter, um, ENCA uh, interview. And to be honest, it, it felt like it had ripped something out of my gut. Because I, feel, I felt at the time that, you know, there's this bucket called South Africa. And there are many people trying to fill this bucket up with water. But there are many people at the bottom making the holes bigger. And so it was almost like it felt like a futile exercise. But I would, I, I would have to align myself with the truth of heaven if I'm to thrive, if I'm to be a carrier of his presence. The other thing about, um, about Israel, interestingly enough, in that pre preparation for going into the promised land, I think they would also have had to solidify purpose in their hearts. Are we doing this because this is a good idea or are we doing this because he has said it? And so I think there's a, this sanctification, there's probably a lot of, and maybe that word sanctification doesn't describe it correctly, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that there was a lot that went into those three days for them to just start preparing themselves to inhabit. And I would suggest that the same for us. If we want to break into everything that he has for us, to go in and inhabit our promised land, and you know, it's so easy for us to say that this promised land is its possessions and its lands and whatever. But actually for me, the biggest privilege of inhabiting the promised land is co-laboring with him because there can be no greater joy than knowing that your father has used you. There can be no greater joy that he has used me to do something. And this is, this, this is the new thing that I believe he wants to do in our midst is he wants to stir in our heart that we would go after those threads that will open up the big doors, that will open up the hearts of people that will see miracles. On Wednesday night, we had a prayer meeting at um, Bron and Phil's house. And I was leading um, the prayer meeting, and just at the outset, Vida came forward. And she just started going after cancer. Now, it wasn't what I had planned, and I was a little bit put out of place because, I mean, I'm the leader here, you know. 
But she went after cancer, and I, I believe one of the things the Lord wants to restore is our authority. Because if we go around the, around the room here this morning, I think most of us would have a good understanding of authority, the authority that we have in the name of Jesus, that it is above every name, cancer, whatever sickness, Parkinson's, whatever it is, that name of Jesus is above every single name. But maybe, maybe we don't have the full revelation of that because maybe we don't go after things the way that we could. Maybe the Lord wants us to become more and more dangerous where we do not tolerate things that sit on our stoop, that's, that manifest in our lives, that we don't tolerate those things anymore because we have a revelation of what he has called us to and the purpose that he has given us. And so this morning, that's my message. My message is um, uh, the other one, one verse that I wanted to just share. In Hebrews 12, it's a wonderful verse. It starts off and it says, Now that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then in Hebrews 12, 12, just a little bit lower down, it says, where the righteous charges the readers and says, I, I urge you, Bind up those things that, that hang limp so that what is lying limp will not be dislocated because we need to be ready for what the Lord is going to be doing. And if we will listen, he will speak to us and we will be used mightily. And so that, that's my encouragement this morning is that we are surrounded by a huge cloud of witnesses. There is a stadium around us with all the people, the, the saints that have died before us, and they're cheering us on and they're saying, you guys are part of the end. You guys are part of the great outpouring. And this is, this is what we need to get ready for is that the Lord is going to start doing things. We need to sanctify ourselves and prepare ourselves for the Lord is going to start doing incredible things in our midst. And this morning, you might feel that maybe you're stuck in Egypt, that you are broken, and you can't get free. You're a slave. It doesn't matter what you try, you can't get free. And I want to encourage you that Jesus has got every single answer, every single answer to every single problem man can face. If, if, if you feel that you are that person, and you feel like you can't get free, and you can't get contentment, and you can't get satisfaction, and you look at other people and it feels like you're window shopping because you're looking through a window and you see all those wonderful things, but they can never be yours because you're, a, you're an orphan or you're, nobody, nobody likes you or nobody looks at you. You're just there. I want to encourage you to come and speak to leadership. If you're one of those people that you feel that the enemy has stolen from you, he's stolen your hope, maybe you've got sickness in your body, maybe there's some dysfunction that you don't even want to tell us about, I want to encourage you to come to the front and let us, as believers, let us trust the Lord for threads. Threads that will open up things. Let us, let us trust the, the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to say that we are children of God, but we must be led by the Spirit of God. Because for as many as are led by the Spirit of God to those, He gave the right, the privilege, and the honor of being called the children of God, the sons and daughters of God.